All right. Good morning, everybody. I forgot to mention at the beginning of the service, this is a family Sunday. So young folks, you are hanging out in here with us. Um, I uh, have a couple things for you to look forward to. First of all, there's a joke early on in the sermon. And then there's going to be a science experiment that I'm going to need a, a young man to volunteer for, Gabe. And so when it comes time for Gabe to volunteer, he'll be ready to volunteer. Right, Gabe? All right. This is our second week in the book of 1 John. 1 John is a little teeny book near the end of the New Testament. It's written by the Apostle John, the same guy who wrote the Gospel of John, as in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He also wrote two other short books, 2 and 3 John. 1 and 3 John are all letters that he wrote that have then become part of our New Testament. And then last in his life, he wrote what we call the book of Revelation. So John is, a, is an important character in the New Testament, not just because of what he wrote, but because he was one of those first followers of Jesus, one of the closest followers. In fact, Jesus uh, treated him as his best buddy. He and John uh, shared things that nobody else shared. As we go through the book over these next couple months, there's going to be four main ideas, four main words that keep circling back. So we talked about last week how um, John, he's he's got big ideas, but they don't just go in a line. He's constantly going in circles, and it, it gets a little dizzying as you read through the book, but if you can read through it a few times, and you can pull out the main ideas, like these four words, you will start to grasp what it is that he's trying to tell us. The first one is abide. Abide means to live with, or to, to live together with, or stay with. So I abide with Jen and the kids. Spiritually, it's the idea of, of living in fellowship living in close connection with God, not walking away from God, not trying to be separated from God, not trying to distance ourselves from God, but trying to be close to God. That's how we abide in God and we're close to Him. John will also say a number of times that God abides in us if we are His children. The, th- the second uh, word there is life. John loves the word life. It shows up over and over again in this book and also in the Gospel of John. He considers Jesus to be the only true source of real life, that all other spiritual life is counterfeit, that we are either a member of the the kingdom of darkness ruled by the king of darkness, Satan, or we are a member of the kingdom of life ruled by the prince of life, Jesus. Then light. John sees the world that we live in as a dark place ruled by the prince of darkness. But Jesus is the light that overcomes the darkness. And we are called to live in the light. That's what we're going to talk about today. And then finally, love. John believes that everything that Jesus commanded us to do and everything that was, can be summed up in Jesus' message is contained in that one word, love. That we are called to love God above everything else and love each other as Christ loved us, which means self-sacrificially, and everything else is just detailed. So those are those four big ideas. Today, we're going to be looking at light. It's not the only time we're going to look at light in this series, but it is the first time we're focusing in on light. So Billy and Bobby were working at a factory, and Billy was tired of working. He'd been working for most of the day. He just wanted to go home. He wanted to get out of work. 
So he put down what he was supposed to be working on, and he climbed up into the rafters of the factory and hung from the rafters. Now, the boss came by and said, Billy, what are you doing hanging from the rafters? And Billy said, well, I, I'm a light bulb. The boss said, you're not a light bulb. Get down here. I'm sending you home because there's something wrong with your head. You need to go see a doctor. Well, this worked out great for Billy, right? Because he got out of work. He gets to go home. Well, as Billy's walking out of the factory, Bobby turns and follows him out. The boss says, Bobby, what are you doing? Where are you going? He said, well, you can't expect me to work in the dark, can you? Whatever. Come on. It's a little better than that, right? I learned that from Katie yesterday. She shared that with me. Today, we're looking at light, and uh, we're looking at, you know, what, what does it mean that God is light? What are the ramifications for us? And specifically, we want to ask this question. What do we do about our sin? I want everybody to grab a Bible. Even if you didn't bring one, grab the pew Bible in front of you. Open it up to the book of 1 John, chapter 1, verse 5. It's on page 1021, so almost all the way at the back. I want you to have this open through the sermon so you can not only be reading it on the screen, but you can have it in front of you. You can jump back and forth and reference things that may not be on the screen at that particular time. 1 John 1, 5 through 10. So just a few verses here. I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we're going to go through it a little chunk at a time, figure out what it says and, and why it matters. He says this, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Those last few verses there are the first memory section that we have for our series. If you want to participate in memorizing the eight pieces that we have this summer, then you can grab a Ziploc bag off the table there. There are eight memory cards in there. And uh, this, this passage here today provides us with our first memory one. But the first verse that we're looking at is five. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So where is this message coming from? What is John talking about here? This is the message we heard from him and proclaimed to you. The him is Jesus himself. John, best buddy of Jesus, close follower of Jesus, spent three years walking around with Jesus, seeing and hearing and experiencing all that Jesus did in that ministry. Even when, when it was just Peter, James, and John, those three amigos, and they went up onto the, the mountain and Jesus was transfigured, John got to see that when, when everybody else in the world other than those three didn't get to see it. John got to hear things that Almost nobody else in the world got to hear. And it is this message directly from Jesus that he says he's proclaiming to these people that are reading the letter. And that's us. We're reading the letter. Maybe you've thought, what a difference it would make in my life or my spiritual life if I could have been one of those first disciples, if I could have seen and heard and touched Jesus in the flesh 
If I could hear the words, the message of Jesus coming out of his very mouth, that would make a difference for me. Well, as you're holding 1 John open there, in that Bible, you have the words of Jesus right there for you. John himself, in the Gospel of John, recorded for us a whole bunch of the words of Jesus. And then he uses that as the basis for this New Testament book, 1 John. Yeah, it would be cool to actually be in the presence of Jesus in the flesh, hear those words coming out of his mouth. But in a sense, you've got something even better. You've got it recorded by an eyewitness, and you can go back to it repeatedly whenever you need to be reminded. That's what we have in the writings of John. John is pointing us back here to the message that he first delivered in what we call the Gospel of John. And we have to ask, what is this message? The message that he's talking about here is bigger than our subject today, but it includes our subject today, and that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Now, there's a physical, we might say a scientific or a physics reality to that. And so I'm going to need a volunteer. Would anybody like to volunteer? Anybody at all? Any, anybody like to volunteer? Gabe, you want to volunteer? You want to come up? Come on up. Come on up. You can do it. Come on. It's all right. If you don't do it, I'm going to have to make Adam do it. So. All right. Come on up, Gabe. All right. Give Gabe a hand, please. Thank you. Thank you, Gabe. All right. So I have here a plastic bin. What do you think's in here? Okay. Here. Hold it. Is it heavy? Okay. So you think it's empty? All right. So I'm going to have you peek in here. Ready? Think something might jump out at you? Okay. Just get down there close. You got to get close. No? All right. Let me loosen this side. What's in there? Nothing. Nothing? What, what about darkness? Is there darkness in there? Okay. There's darkness in there. All right. So <clears throat> what I have here is uh, a flashlight. You have a flashlight with you? <laughs> Give me five, man. Anything else you're packing? Yeah, that's great. All right, so show me how bright your flashlight is. Uh-oh, there it goes. Okay, did you get that like at the fireworks or something? Okay, all right, you just always carry a flashlight with you? Okay, all right, so if you, if you shine your flashlight in there, does it make a difference? A little bit of a difference? Okay, so I've got this light right here. It's a little bright. You Okay. Okay, so shine that in there. That makes a big difference, right? All right, so we have a dark area. We shine the light in, and the light overcomes the darkness, right? Now, you guys, that's a bright light, isn't it? Now, when, when I was a kid, I had a flashlight about this same size, a mini mag light, and I thought it was the coolest light in the world. I had a strap that allowed me to put it on my forehead, on the side of my head, like this, so that I could work on things, and it had two positions, like this or like this. I thought it was the best thing in the world. Now, this light is a whole lot better than that little mini mag light, right? This is Calum's light. He told me that after I have it on for a while, I shouldn't touch the front of it or I'll burn myself. Now, if I shine the light into the darkness, the light overcomes the darkness, right? Now, in this room, let me turn this off, it's getting hot. In this room, we have a whole bunch of light, right? 
If I take this bucket, this bin of darkness, and I dump it into the room, what happens? Nothing. Okay. Why is that? Why doesn't the darkness do anything in the light-filled room? Light is a real thing. It's something. But darkness isn't. It's just an absence of something. An absence of light, right? What? Absence? It's a good word. It means there isn't anything there. It's missing. All right? So darkness is light missing. All right? So we, we can put light into darkness and the light wins. We can't put darkness into light because darkness isn't something. Right? All right, give him a hand. He's going back to his seat. So if, if that's true in a physical sense, how much more true is it in a spiritual sense? Right, God, this passage says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now there is more that we could say about God. We can't just define him as light. He's more than that. But we can say that he is light and there's no darkness in him at all. And that makes sense, because if he is light, he is, his essence is lightness, then of course there can't be any darkness in there. They're not compatible. As soon as the light shines into the darkness, the darkness is gone, right? That's what John is getting at here. And he's making that contrast, not just to tell us about how great God is, how he's all light and there's no darkness, but he wants us to see the contrast between the light of God and the darkness of this world and our darkness as we live in this world in ways that are contrary to what God has told us to do. All of us are sinners. We all sin, even in ways that we're not, avail- that we're not aware of. The light of God exposes our sin. That's what light does. It exposes things, right? So if you've ever been walking through a dark room and you've stubbed your toe on something that was left in the middle of the room or you've stepped on a bunch of Legos in the middle of the room, right? You thought, boy, I wish I would have turned the light on first because that would have exposed the danger in the middle of the room and I wouldn't have stubbed my toe or stepped on things. That's what light does. It exposes things. That's great when we're talking about avoiding something in the middle of the room, but when we're talking about exposing What we've done and said and thought that is evil, well, then we're not too excited about that. Owen is very upset about the idea of sin being exposed. He's been doing really well the last few weeks after getting the, the pump installed in him, but last night he woke up crying like that, and then this morning he just woke up quickly crying, so he's having a hard time. Thanks, son. Sin is a rebellion against God, a disobedience against God. He's the ruler, the rightful king of everything. He created us. He sustains us. He's given us rules, his laws, his commands. And all of us in this room, we have disobeyed and disregarded. We've rebelled against those laws. When we do that, when when we are sinful, we have a choice to make. How are we going to deal with that sin? And I would like to suggest that in this passage, there are three options given. We can try to cover it, or we might say conceal it. We can try to cancel it. We can try to confess it. Two of these lead to darkness, 
and one of them leads to light. So let's look at uh, the, the ending of it, and then we'll come back to the middle of it. First John, starting with verse 8 here. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, or we fool ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. This is more than just say, like denying that we did a particularly, particular thing, a certain sin. Um, this is the idea of really denying that we are sinful at all. If we say we have no sin. Have you met anybody who claims to be sinless? Anybody in here claim to be sinless? Okay. So there's a, there's a cult here in Dark County where the members of the cult claim to be sinless. So it's, it's called the, the Church of God. It's not the Church of God in Ansonia. It's the Church of God with the big building at the corner of 49 and 127. And if you're in Greenville, they're the ones that are always going around looking Amish with the dark clothes and the guys with the big beards. So that, that particular group believes in, in what they would call entire and instantaneous sanctification. Sanctification means to, to become holy, to become like Jesus. Now, if you're a Christian, your job for the rest of your life on earth is to become more like Christ, to become increasingly sanctified. And that's a progress. It's progressing that you go through. You become more like Christ, hopefully every day through the rest of your life. That particular group latches on to a false teaching that John here is referencing almost 2,000 years ago. They are, at least some of them, they are claiming that they no longer sin. I had a conversation with a guy from that group a few years ago. I was walking downtown Greenville, talked to him, and uh, in the course of the conversation, he told me that, that he had become a Christian about 20 years before, and for the last 13 years, he had not sinned at all. That's caught me by surprise, right? So I'd ask him some questions. You mean, you haven't done like any really bad sins, but, but the little ones, the little everyday sins, you've done those, right? No, I haven't even done the little everyday sins. I have been without sin for 13 years. Do you, you mean like in the things that you've said and done or also like in your thoughts? Like you haven't even had a sinful thought in 13 years? That's right. I have not had a single sinful thought. I haven't said anything, done anything, or thought anything sinful in the last 13 years. And he's completely serious when he's telling me this, right? I would like to say, suggest to you, friends, that if you're talking to somebody who's claiming to no longer sin at all, especially in their thoughts, you are talking to somebody who's not connected to reality. I don't mean that they're crazy. I mean that they're deceived, that they're fooled, they're delusional. That's what John is saying here, right? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So these guys, they're claiming that they are sinless. The Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary of the early church, the guy who wrote more books in the New Testament than anybody else, struggled with sin his whole life. Here's what he had to say in the book of Romans, chapter 7, verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Can you feel the frustration in his voice there? 
right? Like, I know what God wants me to do. I want to do what God wants me to do, but I'm broken, and I keep doing the very thing I hate. I don't understand what's going on. A few verses later, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He feels captive to the sinful body that he's in. How sad for Paul that he had to go through life struggling against his sin and his fleshly desires because he didn't know whatever secret our friends at 49 and 127 have figured out. How much better would the New Testament have been if Paul could have shared that secret with us, right? Being a little sarcastic there. As extreme as that is, there is actually a more extreme version of that that says not only um, once you become a Christian, you can somehow learn the secret to being perfect for the rest of your life, but that when you become a Christian, you are then perfect without sin, thought, word, and deed for the rest of your life. And then the opposite is if you are sinning, that is proof that you are not a Christian. That is a diabolical extreme of this false teaching. Now, none of us in this room probably believe that. But we do, we do believe this in some ways. Because when we sin, we try to cover, we try to conceal our sin. We try to, in a much smaller scale, say what John says here, that we, we don't have sin. We want to hide it. We want to keep other people from seeing it. And we hope, this is how crazy we are, we hope that God won't be able to see it either if we cover it and conceal it. So maybe it's that, that porn addiction that you hope nobody will find out about. Someday somebody's going to find out. Maybe your wife's going to find out because you've been racking up a whole bunch of debt and eventually she's going to find the statement and figure things out. But even if that doesn't happen, someday, at the end of time, it's going to be found out. It, whether it's the lying, whether it's the stealing, whether it's the unfaithfulness, whether it's kids, you, like you being mean to your siblings, bullying your little brother or sister when mom and dad aren't watching, all of that is going to be found out someday. Now, if you're like me, you've got a list going through your head right now. You're thinking, oh no, there's that. And there's that other thing. And then there's that, that thing, too, that I had kind of forgotten about, but now I remember it. And I, I don't want any of that stuff to be exposed. Not in this life, and certainly not at the last judgment. And yet, that is the truth that the Bible tells us. It's all going to be exposed. And there's not any hope for us to avoid that. We are sinful. It's, it's like a dog barks. Why? Because he's a dog. The barking doesn't make him a dog. His dogness causes him to bark. Our sin doesn't make us sinners. We are sinners, and therefore we sin, and we can't avoid it. It's just who we are, and so we try to cover it. 
the covering doesn't work. And so sometimes we try to cancel it. Now, the word cancel culture is something that's popular in our world right now. It's the idea that if you, if you say something, if you share something on social media or whatever that is against whatever the official narrative of the gatekeepers is, then you can be canceled. You can have your Twitter account canceled. You can be shadow banned on Facebook. You can be banned from regular media. You can lose your job. You can lose your gig, whatever, if you say something that the powers that be do not like. Try to pretend that you no longer exist, that you didn't say the things that you said. We do that with our sin, too. We try to cancel out, to ignore, to not just cover, but to say that it doesn't even exist, our sin. When we can't do that, we redefine our sin. And I think this is the real danger of this idea. That when God says something is sinful, we try to redefine it and say it's not really that big a deal. Other people are doing worse things. I'm doing a whole bunch of good things. Maybe that cancels out that bad thing. But maybe God's just wrong in it. Now we see, we see this very blatantly in what I refer to as the sexual revolution. Now I'm not going to go into detail because of our younger folks here. But there are lifestyles today that just a few years ago, and really for all of, all of history past, they were rejected as sinful. And then they were tolerated, and then they were accepted, and then they were celebrated, and now we're to a point where you can't speak against them or you are evil. We are forcing people to accept these things which were rejected as wrong lifestyles, we're now saying those things that humanity believed was wrong and that God says are wrong, they're actually good things. God says it's a sin, I say it's good and it should be celebrated and it, it helps me be who I'm supposed to be, my most authentic self. I'm being true to myself and, and God made me and he wouldn't ask me to be somebody other than who he made me to be. And so what he has said is sin is not actually sin, it's a good thing. We try to cancel out that idea of sin. Instead, we celebrate it. We see this in verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now that doesn't mean that God is actually a liar. It's that we're, we're accusing him of being a liar. What you say, God, is not true. What I say is true. You're a liar. And it's ridiculous to think of a, like a, a normal human being shaking their fist, screaming at God saying, you are a liar. You have said that these things are wrong and you have no right to tell me what right and wrong is. I'm going to define for myself what right and wrong is. You, God of the universe, creator and lawgiver and judge, you are a liar. Doesn't that sound ridiculous? Our world does that. And if we're honest, we do that too. We try to cancel out that idea that whatever it is that we want to indulge in, that we want to keep secret, whatever, maybe it really isn't sin like God says it is. So we can try to cover it. We can try to cancel it. Or the third thing, we can confess it. We see this in verse 9. If we confess our sins, 
He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is a good verse to memorize. You're going to need that a lot in life. This third option, this idea of confessing. Confessing means to to agree with. Uh, Con, with, fess is the idea of speaking. So to speak with or speak in line with what somebody else is saying. So I confess the reality of what God is saying. I say, yes, what I am doing is sinful. God has said it's sinful. I agree with him. I confess that. I confess that I'm guilty of it that I'm even enjoying it, that I'm plotting to figure out how to do more of it and cover it up and conceal it and cancel it. I I confess all those things. I'm lining myself up with what God is already saying. That's what it means to confess. So it may be, Lord, um, I I have gossiped. I have envied. I've, I've wanted my neighbor's car and my neighbor's house and my neighbor's vacations and my neighbor's life. I've wanted that. I have lied and stolen and I have cheated to get ahead at work. Everybody does it, right? But I have done it. I've looked lustfully at people. I've placed my wealth or my success or my health or my happiness above you, Lord. Those are all statements of confession. I'm not going to hide it. I'm not going to deny it, cancel it. I'm going to line up with you, God, and say, this is what I have done. It's truly the only right way to deal with our sin. And look what the verse promises. If we do that, then what? So, If we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. To forgive is not simply to ignore. It's not like when somebody does something to you and they come and apologize and you say it's no big deal. That's not forgiveness. Our sin is a big deal to God because he is perfectly holy. He's complete light and there can be no darkness in him at all. And so when we are filled with darkness because of our sin, we can't be connected with him unless he does something about our darkness. He takes it seriously. And the way he takes it seriously is he forgives us. He cancels out that sin debt. He says, I no longer hold this against you. It's, it's like if you're in traffic court because you were going 90 in a school zone, right? And the judge, he, he, he finds you guilty, right? And, and here's the fine. I don't know what the fine would be for 90 in a school zone. You probably wouldn't walk out with your license, Right? You may spend time in jail. I don't know. But the judge says, I find you guilty of all these things. Here are the punishments. But I'm going to forgive you, and you can walk out free. No fine. You get to keep your license. No time in jail. That's forgiveness. That's what God does for us. He cancels out that debt and forgives us completely. But look at the next set. It's not just that he forgives us, but he cleanses us of all unrighteousness or all darkness or all dirt, ugliness, sinfulness. Because if you were in that courtroom and you got your debt forgiven, your record wiped clean, and you walked out the door, are you still guilty of going 90 in a school zone? Yes, you are. You don't have to pay the the debt. You've forgiven of that, right? But you're still guilty. So God takes it one step past forgiveness and he cleanses us. 
It's like he removes the guilt as though you never actually went 90 in a school zone. That in God's view of things, you are innocent but no longer guilty. Isn't that an amazing thought? Like to, to think about being forgiven by the perfect, light-filled, like he is light, perfect, holy God of the universe is amazing. To think that he would then wash us clean, not just forgive our debt, but wash us clean, declare us innocent, not guilty. That's a whole level, whole other level of love and grace. But that's what this verse says that he did. It's, it's like a little boy, he's, he's ready to go to church. He's dressed up in his Sunday best, right? He's got his new suit on. He's ready to go. Mom's not quite ready to go, and so she says, you sit here, you wait patiently, do not go outside, because you get all muddy. We're leaving for church in a few minutes. Well, of course, his mom's back is turned. Little guy goes outside in order to get a few minutes of playtime in before he goes to church. Of course, he gets all muddy. Some of you are thinking, this sounds like my kid, right? So he gets all muddy. He realizes, oh no, I'm in trouble. He comes in, he's crying, Mom, I'm sorry, I disobeyed you and I got my clothes all muddy. Mom is probably pretty mad. But mom loves this child, and mom forgives the child. But mom does not then load the dirty kid up in the car and take him to church. She gets clean clothes, she gets him cleaned up, takes him to church. That's what God does for us too. He forgives us, and he cleans us up. Forgives us of our sins, and cleanses us of all unrighteousness. Now we might say, wait a minute, that doesn't seem fair to me. I mean, it's a good deal for me. But it doesn't seem fair. It's not just. Because I deserve the punishment that I should have. Nobody forced me to be a sinner. I chose to do those things. It's not fair for God to forgive me. Well, then the section that we skipped over adjust, uh, addresses this. First John 1, 6-7. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So he starts off there in verse 6 with a high challenge. He says, if we say we have fellowship with him, we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And it's high contrast again there. Light and darkness, they got nothing to do with each other. If you say you are walking in fellowship, in friendship, in partnership, you're walking closely with God, like John got to do for three years. If, you're in, if you say, I am a child of God, in fellowship with God, I am close to God, we are buddies, we are in fellowship with each other, and yet you're walking in darkness... John says, you're lying. The truth is not in you. But then he swings that pendulum all the way over to the invitation side for this final verse that we're looking at today, verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, he's not, he's not talking about your, your acquiring of salvation here. 
He's not talking about your born-again experience here. He is talking to people who are Christians, and he's saying to them, look, you're claiming to be a Christian, but if you're walking in the darkness and you think you have friendship with God, that you're close to God, that you have fellowship with God, you're fooling yourself. But if you, if you walk in the light, that is, you walk in line with God, you're walking in the light with him, then you are in fellowship with him. This is the difference between fellowship and sonship. When you become a Christian, you are adopted into the family of God. You are declared a son of God. Now, ladies, don't get too worked up here. In the New Testament, you are also referred to as sons of God. It's not that God is confused about gender like our culture is today. It's that in that part of the world at that time, women, you basically didn't have any rights. And you didn't inherit things. You were less than a full child in the family. The sons were full children, the daughters were not. And so as God inspires the writers of the New Testament, he's using this idea of sonship and he's using the terminology of that time in order to help them understand that whether you're a man or a woman, when you become a child of God, you are considered like legally a son, an heir of God. Your sonship is set when you are adopted into the family of God. He does not kick you out. He does not reject you. He does not say, I changed my mind. You are a more rotten child than I ever knew, and you are no longer mine. He does not do that. Just like I don't do that, right? My children can break their fellowship with me by disobeying being rebellious. It can even be a huge thing. They leave and they're the prodigal and they mess up their life. That can break their fellowship with me. We're not in friendship. We're not walking together. But they're still my children. Broken fellowship does not break the sonship or the daughtership. But our sin does break fellowship. And uh, John here tells us that it breaks it vertically and horizontally. It's talking about fellowship not only with God, but with each other. Our sin is necessarily linked vertically to God and horizontally to each other. And you and I cannot have real fellowship with each other if we're holding on to, covering, concealing, canceling our sin. That's what the verse says. Verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. What's the opposite of that? If we're walking in darkness, we don't have fellowship with each other. When we confess our sin, we can come back into fellowship vertically with God the Father. And we can come back into fellowship with each other. Some of our sins is just between us and God, right? We need to confess it to God. Some of our sins, we need to confess to each other. I don't mean like like go to confession and somehow earn forgiveness and earn your rightness with God because you're doing this act of, of confession. That's not what I'm talking about at all. I'm talking about maybe you've sinned against somebody here in the church. Whatever that looks like. And you need to go to them and you need to say, this is what I've done. This is what I've said. And I've been avoiding you because of it. Or I've been harboring this 
this guilt, or I've been maybe like you think that they sinned against you. I've been harboring this grudge against you, this bitterness. There's this thing that has broken our fellowship, and then we need to just get it out in the open. We just need to confess it. Maybe you've done things, not to somebody else, just to God, but you still need to confess them to somebody else because you need help. You're trapped. You're stuck. You keep doing it over and over again, and you need an ally to help you. Confessing that to somebody else, to a trusted brother or sister in Christ, may be the door that swings open into a new stage of life where you are no longer held captive by that thing that you keep trying to cover or cancel. The verse says that it's the blood of Jesus, his son, that cleanses us from all sin. Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross cleanses us from our sin. In that moment of his death, he took upon him all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our guilt, all of our darkness, all of our ugliness. Even though he was all light, he took that darkness upon himself in order to die the sacrificial death to pay for our sins. In that moment, to use John's words, God is being faithful and just. Faithful in the sense that God had promised many times in the Old Testament and the New Testament that he would forgive the sins of his people. And so he's being faithful to do that, to forgive us. He's also being just because sin deserves punishment. Sin necessitates punishment. If he's not going to punish me and you, who's he going to punish? He's not just going to write it off and say it's no big deal because that would make God a liar. It is a big deal. He can't ignore it. He's got to deal with it. So God the Son takes it on himself. He takes that punishment that we deserve so that God can be both faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. These six little verses here are full of good news. Maybe you're feeling all the challenge of it because you want to keep things covered, you want to keep things secret, you want to deny things. Maybe you're feeling all the challenge of that. But I hope you feel all the invitation there too. God made it possible for you to have all of your sins forgiven. Not just the really bad ones, then you've got to work off the others. Not just the ones that everybody knows about, but the secret ones, the thoughts in your mind even. The things that you seem like you have no control over, they just come rushing in. It's like, ah, where did that come from? Even those things God has dealt with on the cross. If you will not cover and not cancel your sin, but you will confess it, not only do you have restored fellowship with God, you have restored fellowship with each other. And that is all such good news. We're going to celebrate that good news now as we take communion. We're going to sing a couple songs that celebrate that good news. We're going to have some time of reflection before then. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to have a couple minutes of silent reflection as we get ready for communion. This is this is always a good time for confession, but especially today as we talk about confession. So search your heart. What 
is it that you're holding on to? What is it that you're covering? What is it that you are canceling out? What is, what is that thing that's preventing the vertical relationship with God from being strong and healthy and full of light? What is it that is breaking fellowship with other believers? Will you bring those to God in confession now? And will you allow God to push you into the next stage of talking to the person that needs to be talked to, admitting the guilt, confessing it to them? After a time of reflection, I will read a passage from 1 Corinthians, and uh, then we will start serving communion. So let's, let's go to God in prayer and confession and reflection right now. Lord, thank you for these few verses in 1 John that tell us the amazing good news that your son died in order to cover completely and cancel out completely to deal with our sin. And that if we are in you, if we have been adopted into your family, we are your sons, your beloved children. That doesn't change. We are secure in you. And yet, Lord, we know that we break our fellowship with you, we break our fellowship with each other, and every one of, in this, of, every one of us in this room, we have something that needs confessed now. And so, Lord, I ask that you would work through us, that your, your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts and our minds, bringing to the surface those things that we've tried to cover or ignore or cancel out. In Jesus' name.